Welcome to this episode of the Million Dollar Mastermind. I'm Larry Wydell, and let's get started. I'm excited this afternoon because I'm talking with one of my longtime best uh, buddies in Aspen. She's the one who has <laughs> advised me on probably 80 to 90 percent of all the clothing, especially ski wear and uh, boots and jackets and everything, since I came to Aspen in 2000, uh, well, who knows when, but she and I have been big buddies. She's seen me go through good times and bad times and uh, always, always is positive. And she is, uh, so welcome, Lee. Thanks for uh, taking the time. I know you're busy. Pleasure, pleasure. Happy to happy to be part of this. And I know you're running out tomorrow. You got a uh, you're running out on a, a buy-in trip, or or where are you headed tomorrow? So actually, Saturday is when I'm leaving. Yeah. And I'm going to um, Milan to work on my ski collection for next year. And you do this all the. I mean, this is your annual part of your annual pattern to your year, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, and let me re let me just let people know a little bit about you. Uh, Lee is known, and she's she's in the magazines. She's got write up as Aspen's most celebrated tastemaker, and uh, she became that. She and her husband Tom have owned their started as a ski boutique and uh, expanded from that thirty two years ago, and uh, she thirty three. 33. 30, 33. Wow. And uh, she's got her own uh, design line and uh, uh, that, uh, what does it say? You resuscitated it in 2008. Is that Othier? So the, the name of the brand is OTA. OTA. And it originated, yeah, it's OTA. I'm not a good and it French pronouncer. <laughs> <laughs> it originated as a ski brand in 1910, and during the wars, they made airplanes, and then in the 50s, it was probably the most celebrated ski, and then some Italian guys kind of, it was originally a Swiss company, took control of it, they started making apparel to merchandise with the skis, and then in 2008-9, when everything kind of fell apart, the Italian that was left owning it owned it with a big, big uh, AFA group, big fashion group, and they didn't want to be in the ski wear business anymore. And our partner, Gustavo, was not sure what he wanted to do. And I said, well, why don't we do it together? So then in 2010, 100 years after the, the 100 year anniversary of the company, we relaunched the brand as a luxury ski apparel line with um, influence from with, uh, from ski nostalgia with all the modern fabrics and fasteners and, and look of today. Yeah, that is fantastic. I'm familiar with the plane for some reason, but uh, Ati- Yeah, it was the vampire. It flew, it flew in the mountains. It like could, it could like maneuver the, the giant, you know, the like narrow passages through the mountains and stuff i guess it could uh-huh. dive really fast i don't i don't know all the particulars i should probably learn about it but so that's yeah, made a, an so to say that correct right that's adier is that right 
No, OTA. OTA. OTA but it's spelled A U T H I E R. But it's, right. yeah, it's like O T A, but O T A A U T H I E R. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm learning something. But everybody needs <laughs> to know you know, you have all of these, you know, Aspen is a real down to earth town where you, you have this thing, celebrities and everything. The, the, Wealthy people are here, but you never know. I mean, you know, they, uh, you you could never tell really who who is who. But no. the late the ladies are different. But the people who live, if you wonder where the people who live in these mansions on the hill, the fifteen, twenty, twenty five, thirty million dollar homes where they get their clothing, it's Lee. Uh, they go to Lee. In fact, it's they said in the magazine. 80% of your clients are regulars, and uh, for most of them, Lee's the first person they call when they're, they're playing, uh, and again, not the plane, commercial, when their plane lands in Aspen, Lee's the first person they call. So it's just a little bit of uh, background on Lee, and uh, plus she's just so much fun uh, and has fun with what she's doing. She got, let's not... Let's not uh, 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 bypass Tom. Tom Bowers, uh, her husband and uh, co-owner of the store, is a former World Cup ski racer. So if you come into Aspen, you want to see Lee for your clothing, but you want to see Tom and get your helmets and your skis and your poles and uh, all of those things. And you know you're dealing with the best. And so... Uh, after listening to the podcast, you're going to be an Aspen insider now. You're not going to wander around. You're going to go straight to towards the gondola and look for Performance Ski. It's right on the corner. Can't miss it. And uh, go inside and ask for Lee and Tom. And you're going to feel like a local because, uh, you know, you don't have to ask around the stores and go in all the other stores to find out where to go. You'll, you'll be in the spot. And so... Lee, when you started out, uh, when you think back, when you started at 32 years, uh, it had to be a little bit scary. But how, how did you come to be this person? Uh, you know, how, how did you get up the, the, the guts to give this thing a try? It was, all, it was just by accident. So in let's see, it was 33 years ago, actually. And my husband, Tom, had just retired from the US ski team. And a friend of his was starting a ski shop. And Tom was, well, it was actually the last, his last World Cup race here in Aspen. And a friend said, what are you going to do when you're done? And he said, I don't know. And his friend Jan said, well, I want to start a ski shop. You want to do it with me? And Tom said, sure, I don't have anything better to do. So he started the ski shop with Jan. Shortly thereafter, I was out here. I had known Jan. I was a customer of his when he had a shop with his parents. And I met Tom and Jan. And within a year, Jan decided he really didn't like doing this. Tom and I started dating. And it was just, it just kind of happened. It was not anything that was planned that, oh, I'm going to move to Aspen and start a ski shop. In fact, for so we were for seven years before we were married. I commuted back and forth from New York 
and worked at the ski shop and did my job in New York. And then we got married. And then a couple of years later, we had a daughter. And then I think it was two years after she was born, I finally moved to Aspen and started working at the shop full time. Okay. But so it was, it just was by accident. It was, it was not a plan. Yeah. And I saw your daughter more or less grow up in the store. <laughs> uh, and you're, I, I didn't know which one, uh, your daughter or your son was the oldest. So your daughter's the oldest. Yeah, she's the oldest. And uh, she's the oldest. There, did she, seems like she did ski raising because I remember she and I were next to each other on tables getting rehab one time uh, over here uh, at that place with it's across from the museum now. But uh, so she did ski. Yeah, Aspen's medicine. Yep. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, uh, but she's not doing that anymore, is she? Yeah, no, both children ski raced. She's now at UCLA. Yeah. Um, finishing up. And my son is in Austria right now training and he is still actively ski racing. Yeah. And, uh, what a stud he is. I mean, you could, you just stand next to him and you realize this, this, this is a physical specimen, but he comes by it honestly with his, uh, uh, dad the ski racer it's probably hard for tom not to get on the plane and go out there and watch him train yeah no he likes watching him train that's for sure when you got uh when you got this thing started uh was this similar were you in retail in new york no 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 i was a financial printer my only experience with retailing was i liked to go shopping so I had absolutely zero experience and I was, I would travel out to see Tom and I would just naturally help people in the store. So it, it just evolved and I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun and, and just one thing led to another, but I had zero, zero experience in the retail world. Give me uh you know, there's rights and wrongs. There's way to be productive and non-productive. But what stuff, what would you, can you think back what stuck out to you as doing things the right way versus doing things the wrong way as you came out from New York, got in a new town, you, you were in a new type of business, you had to have your antenna up about how, because, you know, you're looking around seeing how people do things. And uh, what stood out to you? What lessons did you notice right from the beginning that you feel like has stayed with you uh, all the way through? It's hard work. It's all about working hard. There's no easy way. And you have to just go with what feels right. Like what's I see what people do. I look more now at what competitors do than I did back then. Back then, I don't even think I ever looked at a competitor. I just got here in the store and people would come in and I would try to dress them up in the best ski outfit. And my feeling was always to make people look really good. Like don't send them out of here in something that looks bad. And it just was all about hard work and being friendly and being helpful. There's like, no, that's what it is. Working hard, being friendly, being helpful, selling somebody something that they're going to love, not something that you want to get rid of. Um, and I think that's what's made us successful. 
And uh, it's not any secret. It's not a secret recipe. But did you see people not doing that? Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. Talk. Just go into any store. I see very few retailers that really do a good job. Yeah, because you had to carry those lessons with you from your shopping experiences in New York too, right? I mean, it's a lot of stores you walk. Like you feel like you walk into a gallery. It's like you know, how dare you come in here? You know, and uh, we've got better things to do than talk. But there's all different. There's. You know, there's all different things. Like you walk into a store and there's fingerprints all over the glass door and the hangers are crooked and things aren't zipped up properly. If you don't have pride in the merchandise that you're selling, how are people going to think that what they're buying from you is special and beautiful and quality? I mean, that's the, that's the first that's the first thing. Yeah, have a pride in, in what you're doing and as you uh where did you get your your lift off? Where was the biggest gamble, let's just say, that you guys took? You know, it's like you have every, success. My husband will tell you every, every step is a gamble. <laughs> every day, every step is a gamble. We have no formula. We don't show up to buy with spreadsheets. We buy from our gut. What we think is what we feel at that moment is fantastic. Like so many buyers show up at a showroom and they have the spreadsheet from last year and say, and they say we buy 10 sweaters, six skirts, four dresses and five blouses. Well, if the skirts and sweaters and blouses are all ugly and just the dresses are fantastic, then just buy the dresses. But they feel like they have to go with the formula. So sometimes like we'll make a we'll take a big risk and we'll see something we love and we'll buy 100 pieces and. 90% of the time it works. Sometimes I do make a mistake, but <laughs> it's all about going with your gut. But I mean, that's how you learn and that's how you progress. And so what would you say early on, when did you get to the point where, uh, what's the biggest risk or biggest gamble that the first one that you can remember that sticks in your mind that you, you know, you really had to struggle with? Uh, well, it was, it's never for me. It always has to do with how much money we spend. And so when we made a million dollar order at Prada, my husband just about had a nervous breakdown. I'll still remember standing out on the street waiting for our car. And he's like, oh my God, oh my God, we just spent a million dollars on jackets. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it paid off, right? You guys became, uh, we all love Prada, but you guys became the biggest you know, and at that time, would I think, don't you, would you say that was the ski boutique size store you were in at that time uh, before you moved to the corner? Is it like a ski boutique? Yeah, it was, it was 900 square feet of retail space. It was Nine, very tiny. Very tiny. But out of that tiny space, you sold more Prada ski wear than any store in the world as I remember it. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and not just for one year. It wasn't like a lucky year, right? No, no, no. I think we sold Prada from the first year they did the sport collection, which was maybe 1999, um, until 2009 was our last year doing the sport with Prada because they, well, A, they stopped doing the, the sport, and, the, and B, they also kicked us out because they didn't think my store was nice enough. Yeah, they flew in. They had new corporate. Uh, you know, we 
all of us who have been in the corporate world have had to deal with new CEOs who feel like uh, uh, the world was created the day they uh, got in charge and that nobody knew anything uh, up until they got there and they have to change everything. And so they wound up building the Prada, big Prada store in town and say, uh, your store just doesn't measure up uh, to their standards for some stupid reason. And uh, that didn't slow you down. <laughs> the people who came out, the losers in that, you know, I wonder how much Prada, how much ski wear and how much they sell at that big expensive store they have around the corner now. But that didn't slow you well, down at all. after that, they stopped. What's that? Yeah, no, no, no. After, after that next season, the following season, they stopped with the sports, and what we were—that was actually pretty devastating. Both it, a it very much hurt my feelings. I felt terrible, but also, suddenly we had a buy of over two million dollars that I didn't know what I was going to fill it with, and it just so happened that that like a few months later, I was in Italy and our friend Gustavo who had the OTA brand was trying to figure out what his next step was going to be. And it just, as luck would have it, I'm like, we need a brand to fill the hole that Prada is going to make. So that's when we started the OTA. Yeah. I remember going, living through that because it was traumatic for really all of us. Uh, because, you know, we, we like Prada and we got our Prada from you. You know, we we had lots of it. Right. And, and uh, uh, there were a bunch of us that even wrote letters to the president of Prada <laughs> to get him to reconsider. But I know. They didn't care. They didn't care. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't care. They no. didn't care. And so, you know, it's almost like divine intervention uh, in your career, because had they not gotten out of the way, uh, ODA wouldn't have happened. Right. I mean, you know, that's a hundred percent true. I, I would say that's a hundred percent true. And so you would have been bound to the corporate thing. It would have been hard to make that decision on your own. You know, that would have been like crazy just to drop, uh, Prada for a new idea. But since they took care of that problem for you, Bam! You were right uh, in position to take advantage of, and how has that how has that turned out for you? Unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. And you've even gone through the uh, last uh, the COVID situation. Uh, you know, you basically refused to back down, and. Uh, probably better than any retailer in town came through the COVID lockdown, shutdown, panic, pandemonium, paranoia, better than any other store in town. And you took a lot of criticism for that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But you know, you just, you just can't sit around and feel sorry for yourself and wait for somebody to do something for you. You have to just wake up in the morning and go and make it all happen. Yeah. Because there's always people out there who've got a better idea about how you should run their your business. And when the, their ideas don't turn out, uh, you're the one who's got to uh, clean up the mess. And so uh, if it's your business, you got I, what you did. What I see in that situation, Lee, is you went with your gut just like you do always. 
Exactly. hundred percent. I mean, it was a risk. Like I said to my husband, when everything went sideways in March and I saw people liquidating merchandise, I said, I think we need to hold tight. I think that Aspen's going to be a nice place for people to be. We have beautiful things. They will be discounted, but they won't be liquidated. And I'll bet you we'll end up okay. And we kept everybody working. And because we've always, you know, they work hard for us. So why not? And it's been fantastic. People have been incredibly supportive to us, meaning our customers, our employees have been fantastic. And so grateful that during the whole quote unquote shutdown, that they were still receiving a paycheck from us and not having to deal with the hassle of unemployment. And it's, it's all worked out really, really well, but it was a lot of work. I mean, our guys worked so hard. I've got a bunch of things I want to ask you, but we've got to wrap this episode up. I want to, uh, 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 just point out the thing is like, get your comment about this follow up to a statement you made that, uh, every step is a gamble. And uh, if you want to be in business for yourself, it's going to be a lot of hard work. It's going to be hard work beyond what you think hard work is now before you you take that leap. And uh, uh, if you're friendly, you're helpful, you put your customers first, you, you, you take pride in every aspect of what you're doing, you've got a chance to take those gambles, those risks, and make them work because most people are not going to work. I learned that. I learned that a long time ago. You beat fifty percent of the people just by working hard. And uh, Lee, any last <laughs> any last comment you want to make about the fact of uh, before we go about every step being a gamble? No, no, no. You just have to stay committed. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you believe you have to believe you have to believe you're doing the right thing, but. When you mess up, you got to say, okay, this is wrong and let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't try to milk a bad idea. That's for sure. You can't try to milk a bad idea. I I love it. Thanks so much, Lee. This has been great. And I look forward to having you uh, get back with you and talking about these things some more. Okay, perfect. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Million Dollar Mastermind with me, Larry Wydell. If I've helped you in any way, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For more information like this, listen to our other Million Dollar Mastermind episodes and check out my Wydell Academy YouTube channel and visit us on WydellOnWinning.com. I'm the Million Dollar Mastermind, and until next time, go, go, go.